One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer, and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons, aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but it can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hello, good morning. Mm, that's very presumptuous of me. <laughs> just because it's morning for me doesn't mean it's morning for you. For me, it's just got nine o'clock on Sunday. And I'm recording this, some might say it's a little risky. My two-year-old's in the garden, I can see him, I can hear him, he's chatting, but he's busy. Uh, so I thought I'd seize the moment. I've got two others, my five-year-old and eight-year-old are watching a movie in the other room. I've just made them pancakes, so they'll be fine for a minute. And then my 12-year-old and 16-year-old are still fast asleep. I'll probably have to get them up at some point. Um... And yes, I'm having a cup of tea, just have my breakfast, and I thought I would chat to you and let you know about this week's podcast. Thank you so much for the lovely feedback about last week's. It's good to be back with the third series. I loved my chat with Jack Monroe, um, and I'm so happy that you all liked it as much as me. I felt like, again, a lot of wisdom in there. How lucky am I that I get to hear so much um, brilliant advice and just, I would genuinely say every single podcast chat I've had, I take something away from the conversation, stays with me. And that is a lovely feeling. So this week is no exception. I spoke to Jess Phillips, who is Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley. And my producer, Claire, and I travelled up to see her in person. We went, must have been sort of October, November kind of time, when we were allowed to go. I know that much. But uh, now that feels just like a weird idea because obviously we haven't been going anywhere for a while. But anyway, we went to Birmingham. We arrived a little early, Claire and I, so we had a little fried egg and bacon sandwich outside the office. And then Jess arrived bang on time. We went into her office on the road, um, which was very, very, very Jess, actually, because it was completely accessible. She um, had loads of cards up all over the place from her happy constituents and messages and 
um, lots of information there from, from what was going on in their lives. And so she's brilliantly engaged with her constituents. But also the place itself had no heating. It was pretty, pretty basic. Um, but I guess that's not the priority, which is what I like about Jess and why I want to speak to her, because to me she represents what, as a kid, I thought all MPs were like. Um, engaged with the people she represents, very outspoken, very bright, funny about life, but also very aware of what needs to be done where and how to help um, social change from the ground up. That's honestly what I thought MPs were all like. I didn't. It took me a while to realise um, that's not how it always is. Jess has two little boys with her partner, Tom. She, like me, got pregnant very quickly into that relationship. And the other thing that resonated with me, Jess and I are about the same age, and she also found that having her first kid really harnessed her ambition, and I felt like that too. I did a lot of work before I had my first baby. Sorry, it's the sound of my two-year-old putting a truck along outside. Um, yeah, I, I, I did do a lot of work before I had Sonny, but after I had him, I thought, right, every minute when I'm working away from him has to count, and it really focused me, so I totally get that as well. But anyway, enough of my blabber. I've already got my cup of tea, so I won't be here enough to make my tea like I normally do. It's here. It's getting a bit cold, to be honest with you. So I'll sit here, drink my lukewarm tea, <laughs> and uh, listen in, and see you on the other side. Thanks for lending me your ears once more. Yeah, thank you so much for um, letting me come and speak to you. I, I really wanted to speak to you for so many reasons. Not least, I think, because as an MP, you're kind of what I always, when I was growing up, imagined what an MP would be like. Someone that's really engaged with her constituency, speaks up for what she believes in, passionate, uh, pretty ballsy, just sort of firmly ensconced in, in the politics of our society rather than in all the sort of um, the society that's in politics, mm. I guess. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's true, but I heard that you wanted to be Prime Minister from when you were really small. I did, yeah. That's, which I first think, I think is adorable, by the it, way. I mean, I think it, the only thing you can describe it as <laughs> is adorable, because, I mean, it's just sort of slightly, you know, I can only, I, the worst thing about it is I can only really put it down to Ma- Margaret Thatcher, who was the Prime Minister when <laughs> I was four years old, and I must have just thought... I'll do that job. That she's, you know, she's doing it. Yeah. I definitely wasn't going to do it like her though, because we weren't even allowed to say a name in our house. Yeah, well, actually, it's the same in my house. And funny enough, we're pretty much the same age. I'm just a little bit older than you. Um, and at my school, uh, we had to do something where we had to fill in like a sort of mock-up of a newspaper front cover and do um, my hero. And I decided to draw the night that my dad had gone down the road and stood up on top of the local car wash to rip down a massive Margaret Thatcher poster, which is probably something you can get in big trouble for, but I did this very detailed drawing of my dad ripping down this Well, your dad and my dad both. My dad used to go around with with like a bread knife on a stick to to get down the posters for the opposing political parties. Really? Wow. Because they were done like high up on strings, so he, he had manufactured... Essentially, like a shillelagh to uh, <laughs> to take down the posters. Uh, of I think our dads any... would have a lot to talk yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We don't allow it in Birmingham anymore, and actually, you don't see it in London. It used to be like at election time, there would hmm. be posters and stuff everywhere, but we yeah. don't allow it on the lamppost anymore. There was some sort of, you know, by law set in the West Midlands that doesn't allow it. But, you know, that's really put people like my dad out of uh, <laughs> a really good election job that he used to have. He used to put the posters up as well, and there was always this like battle of who could get their poster on the top. The highest bit. Yeah. Or your dad's bread knife on the stick would reach. 
Um, is he still very politically engaged, your dad? Oh, yeah, really, really. Uh, in fact, he just rang me to talk to me. Um, and I was in the middle of doing an unconscious bias training uh, that Parliament has put on. And my dad had rung me twice and sent me a message saying, call me as soon as you can. The first thing that he wanted to know was when my nephew's, his grandson's birthday was, it's not for like six weeks, so it was not an urgent call. And the second thing was, he wanted to talk to me about Dominic Cummings and whether he will leave before Christmas. And I was like, okay, all right, Dad, this, this was not the urgency that I expected. Well, from my father, who is nearly 80, has cancer and is shielding. When you say, call me ASAP, I, 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 I would like it not to be about... Dominic Cummings. <laughs> <laughs> and month and a half away birthdays. Oh, yeah, well, it's, I suppose you, you grew up in that political house, like your dad being obviously very engaged, and your mum as well, I gather, mm-hmm. was very sort of active with her campaigning. Yes, and she was. She was, um, she was a political... I mean, she was a political activist in, in, in the lab, local Labour Party as much as anything else, but my mum's activism uh, was much more... Um, issue based so around feminism and uh, around sort of injustices so she um, she when she was quite young she so she was 24 25 which seems phenomenal to me now that a that my mum was ever that age but uh, (laughs) that and she had two kids like me she had her kids at a very similar age to me so she was quite young although back then she was probably considered geriatric um she had taken on a big massive uh pharmaceutical company ICI the biggest pharmaceutical company in the country um because they had given my nan a drug they developed a drug that was given uh for heart disorders angina and they gave it to my nan and it basically made my nan go blind um and stopped it it's like the most poetic thing that happened so they tried like to cure my nan's broken heart and they dried up her tears so it's literally like the most poetic poetic injustice that has ever occurred my nan actually didn't have any sort of heart problem but because she was a woman and they don't test it they don't do any proper medical research that you know she'd maybe been a bit breathless once so they gave her this medication and it dried up her tears. So when I was little, we used to have to, every hour, we used to have to, like, drag uh, tissues, wet tissues across my nan's eyes to clear out her eyes uh, because it was like, for her, any light going into her eyes was like sandpaper on her eyes because it was full of grit. Um, and my mum successfully found, with other with a number of other campaigners, thousands of people who'd suffered this same effect across the country. Wow. In a de- in the, this is in 1976. Yeah. How on earth did she find anybody? How? I've read some of the newspaper art- archives about it, and it is just like you know, going in, having local church hall meetings, and wow, your just, mom. That's amazing. just unbelievable that she sort of travelled around the country trying to find these people. She had a two-year-old and a newborn baby. And um, and but she they were successful and when all the claims were in by like the nineteen eighty three, um, they'd sued them for like twelve million pounds in total back then. That's obviously an enormous fortune and mm. giving it out to all the people who had suffered. Uh, so yeah, and you when you grow up in that sort of environment where if something is wrong, you do something about yeah. it. 
then that will inevitably rub off on you. It's like being raised by Erin Brockovich. Although I have to say, I wasn't really cognizant of all this work that my mum had done when I was little, because why would you be? But we had a cupboard in our house that was called the Araldin cupboard. And I thought that an Araldin cupboard was like a cupboard that everybody had in their house, like uh, an airing cupboard. <laughs> but Araldin was the name of the drug, and it's where she kept all the case studies of... Wow. They, my dad had gone out and found in an auction this big cupboard so she could keep all the case studies from around the country. And so it was forever... Co- we still call it the glasses are now kept in the Araldin cupboard. We call it the Araldin cupboard, but I just thought it was like, like you know, like you know, like a poang. <laughs> like I thought that like everybody had an Araldin cupboard, yeah. like a Billy bookcase. Exactly. If you see something similar and someone like, oh, you got an Araldin cupboard? Exactly. <laughs> they would be like, is that what it's called? And I'd be like, yeah, that's definitely that's the official name of that. That's an I want to Araldin. Put one on eBay. I'm going to let one out. <laughs> well, I suppose as well when you're a kid. Actually, having a very, you've always got automatically got a very good sense of what's fair, actually. Mm. Children are born with that quite innately, aren't yeah. they? So maybe your mum acting upon it felt quite logical. It's only really when you reflect when you're older that you realise the energy and effort. And also the fact that most people grow out of yeah. feeling the impetus to actually do anything. Absolutely. But then what your nan went through sounds horrible. And, yeah. you know, uh, very um, unjust and so I suppose yes, that's a big fuel to put on the fire isn't it yeah but my nan help. was my nan had raised my mum to be like that uh, so you know my nan was one of the like she was she was just from around the corner from here she was a single parent in the 1950s which was unheard of and she was a dinner lady at one of the local schools and she, but she I remember in the 80s like my nan would be the first person who'd like chain herself to something wow. something was going like you know she would she would stick up uh, against like skinheads on the bus and things when if they were being racist and she was like deeply offended by South Africa my nan like the, the fact that the South African team didn't have any black players or didn't allow black players I remember my nan literally spoke of nothing else when and she used to pick me up from school every Thursday and give me a Kit Kat and a ham sandwich which, um, an on update, yeah, an update on what is happening. <laughs> and back then, um, parliamentary uh, PMQs, uh, Prime Minister's Questions, was on a Thursday. It's now on a Wednesday. But my nan would always pick me up from school on a Thursday. And when we got home, she would stand and do all of our ironing, make us sound like a scullery maid. Uh, she would do all the ironing. So the smell of the iron reminds me of my nan, like fresh, clean washing. Um, and watch... Um, Prime Minister's questions and I would Mm. just sit there with her watching Prime Minister's questions and so to me like the most working class people were deeply politically engaged and deeply Mm. activated to do things and change things so that is the environment that I grew up in Mm. it wasn't like you know I never even considered that my nan was a kind of person who might not have much agency because she was born in 1913 left by her uh, she was put into it as an orphan when her mother died because her dad didn't want her anymore, but he kept her son, uh, their son, and married someone else and raised a family. And my nan was literally sent into service uh, of a wicked aunt where she was basically a maid. And then she got out of that by marrying my grandfather, who I liked, but was a terrible philanderer and sexist and treated her appallingly. My mum used to tell this story about how... Um, uh, my, my nan never knew this even before she had died, but my mum had kept this secret for her dad, that my nan had taken off her engagement ring to do the washing up um, and then couldn't find it and, like, you know, made uh, had the drains cleaned out and everything. But what had happened was that my granddad had stolen it from the side of the sink, pawned it to pay for an abortion for a mistress. <laughs> 
So, wow. yeah, so, you know, I really loved my granddad and he, he lived with me when I was a child. He was one of the people who brought me up. But, you know, he wasn't a cracking husband, <laughs> but he was probably better than living in servitude. And so, you know, I knew all this sort of folklore and stories about my nan and my granddad, who, like I say, lived with me till I was 16, moved in when I was two, until I was 16, that these were deeply working class people who'd been born in areas of Birmingham that had been cleared in the slum clearance. Mm. And they were deeply politically activated and they owned politics as far as I was concerned. So that is what I grew up with, that, that politics is for those people. So I was shocked when I met other people who were like really posh in politics. <laughs> Yeah, or even meet so many people where politics is almost kept in a box. Yeah, um, like it's some, yeah, exactly, yeah. like compartmentalised. Whereas, you know, one of my overwhelming thoughts after we had the referendum was that I must make sure my kids don't feel that way about politics. I mm. must make sure that to them it's not a kind of an add-on to their life, but they understand how all those strands affect their everyday life. I mean, you were telling me that normally when your constituents can come and see you, it's all manner of everyday life that they bring you. I mean, it's literally <laughs> anything that you can imagine, mm. like from the sublime to the ridiculous. Like uh, one woman rang up once and said, there's, you know, I, I had a new patio done and there's some slabs in my garden. Um, they're at the bar of the garden and I, I can't clear them she had a private house hmm. their so own slabs to go around. Clear it's <laughs> just like what are you going to do about these slabs yeah, I'm, not like sure. I'm not sure that is um, political I don't think that is but eventually <laughs> in the end I my husband go and clean them, clear really? them he's got a van I was just like can you just get rid of this woman's slabs please because I can't bear this anymore no. and you can't fight every battle uh, you actually, can't fight every logic. battle if someone's calling you out with just that just like oh god do you know what I'll send someone round <laughs> I've got a, I've got a good husband he's got a van he'll come and clear the slabs and so you know you 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 get <laughs> everything and when I go into schools I try and explain to kids that literally the sort of fabric that are in the clothes of their mm. uniform is decided by a piece of legislation there is nothing that anybody eats or wears or does that there isn't some piece of legislation that governs what way that has to be done yeah and people don't realize that it's it's and I mean I didn't realize until I had to sit on some of those committees discussing literally the tiny minutia of some regulation I was like Jesus who knew there was rules about this no I know I bet not small Jess Phillips back when she wanted to be prime minister thought this is this really what I thought politics would be like <laughs> um but you you mentioned that your mum was a real feminist and I so to what to what extent was that displayed in the marriage she had with your dad was it because I know you've spoken mm. a lot about being very equal mm. with your husband mm -hmm. is that something that you saw growing yes, up yes absolutely 100% um maybe my brothers would have a different answer to this question um because they were born in the 1970s and so you're one of is it one of four I'm one of four so where yeah. are you so in the lineup? I'm the end I'm the oh, last the one baby. she definitely most has popular. had enough I'm definitely the most popular <laughs> yeah there's literally the no two spot. ways about it in a big family it's it, a peachy spot also the only girl as well like you know they're quite although my mum used to say she hated it when people were like oh god are you relieved you got a girl like she hadn't loved the boys yeah um but the answer was absolutely yes if she'd been honest. She was delighted to have a daughter. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the, when I was growing up, my mum went back to work when I was about 18 months old and I have, since she died, I'd read this 
uh, she'd been obviously like writing a diary, or not not like in any sort of organised way, just some random pieces of paper that I found after she died. And it is, I mean, it, it is the most sort of harrowing, true account of what it is like to have a tiny baby. And it's literally talking about how I've dragged myself up in my cot bars and I'm screaming and she cannot do anything to stop me crying. I just think that maybe I was such a pain in the ass that she thought, you know what? I'm going to go back to work. <laughs> I'm going to go do something with my life. Um, so for actually for, for most of my mother's life as a mother before me, mm. she had worked and done bits and she got a degree um, before she had um, my eldest brother um, but she and she'd been a civil servant um, at the GPO and done bits and pieces helping out in academic research and stuff. But she didn't really work, and my dad was the main breadwinner. But it was the nineteen seventies, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was um, if you basically if you're from round here and you're a woman who works, you you work in uh, a factory or you're a teacher. I think those were the two options. Mm. Um, but she, um, yeah, so I think at that point she went back to work and she was like a sort of personal assistant uh, in a sort of big public sector, sort of charity, in big public sector and charity organisations and then worked her way up. But by the time I was about seven, my mum was like a sort of top executive in um, uh, an organisation that was a, around how um, health authorities work. Um, and my dad had retired early um, and was sort of dwindling down. And so to me, the person who cooks your dinner is your dad. My dad did all the cooking, all the cleaning. My granddad moved in with us to help with childcare when my mum went back to work when I was two. Um, and so he was the person who picked me up from school. My granddad picked me up from school before my dad got home from work. Then my dad did all the cooking and cleaning. My brothers were always m encouraged much more to do that sort of thing than I ever was. They can they can all cook considerably better than me. Mm -hmm. I married a man who can cook incredibly well, so that, is, that life skill <laughs> is lost on me forever. Um, and so they definitely lived that out in their lives. And my dad never, ever, I don't, I never, ever got any sense of him feeling emasculated or that being uh, an issue in my parents' marriage Which at actually all. is pretty modern thinking, considering totally. that decade. And, and that they time. definitely didn't necessarily come from that. They came yeah. from much more traditional yeah. women. Are, although, they, to be fair, both my nana and my granny, you wouldn't mess with either of them. Mm. And both my, my the people they went on to have successful marriages were not my actual biological grandfather, but my, uh, my, my step-granddad and um, my dad's dad were both very calm nice gentlemen um and the women were tough mm. and ha has it trickled down i'm curious to know if your brothers have quite equal marriages in that way does it trickle down to how they are you don't have to go into loads of detail about um, their marriages their relationships yes they do in they, general they do they definitely do um an equal share of childcare mm. without question the ones that have children one of my brothers doesn't have uh, any children but um they definitely do have, yeah. They they and they d they definitely take the lion's share of the cooking. And my brother Sam, who's married to a French woman, she cannot stop cleaning. I literally have to <laughs> tie her down. Can she come when, mine? I mean, <laughs> it's it's actually more annoying than you think. You oh, think it's yeah. a service. She comes to stay with us at Christmas, and she never sits still. I'm like, oh, we yeah. really, we don't, 
we don't iron sheets. No. <laughs> Just whack them straight on Some the bed. Some people iron sheets. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. come on. Life's too short. People, some people iron knickers. What the hell? What? Um, <laughs> but she she does she she just loves to clean but yeah my brother does all the cooking and things and mm. shopping and then looking after but it's not even note it doesn't feel particularly noteworthy it is the way that we and and to my husband it's not a shock either no i think that's all really positive and i'm i mean i'm raising five boys and <laughs> i would say that they're all going to be you know that the ones that are old enough to know about it are already you know firmly in the feminist camp in fact, I was having a really good chat yesterday with my 16-year-old because we were flicking through one of those sort of shopping Christmas catalogues and got to the bit with the toys and there's all this very, very traditional role play already in the kids' toys with all the little girls playing with the dolls and with the buggy and the mm. bag for the baby and then you get the boys' stuff and they're playing with guns and dinosaurs and construction and it's so disappointing I find it such an uphill like come on it's 2020 we were aware of this when I was a teenager sounds like your parents were aware of it when they were younger it's like you know come on haven't we really got a bit more expansive in our idea of why is there girl lego now and, and there no, is like a girl Lego. Lego. So like we were fine with just Lego. Yeah. We all just had that moon base yeah. that you had to stick it's the actually things only like three to. Colors when I was a yeah. kid, I it? mean, like grey, white, and red is all I really just remember. Ridiculous that yeah, there Lego is friends, girl. as they call it. Yeah, we make a little cafe, and yeah, it's I know. Oh, anybody ever made out of Lego? In my experience was cars or uh, just like a house that never had a pitched roof, always a flat roof, mm. and just that. What? Why do we need? Unless you're talking to me, in which Lego. case I made a five-story Lego Ninjago city during lockdown, which is uh, really beautiful. Obviously, following instructions. I mean, we made. Uh, yeah, I mean, my kids <laughs> do. Like, totally my not kids we, do me. that. Now. I did it on my own. We made. Uh, well, and, and when I say we, I had literally no part in it. Other than watching the Friends Marathon while we made it, we made the Friends, the friends one. Sets. Oh, that's yeah. a great set! Oh my gosh, it's amazing! I love the little cameras and everything. Oh, the attention yes. to detail It's so amazing. But <laughs> now we want the whole soundstage. We want all of the different apartments yes. and everything. Yes. But my son Danny, he was like, "That's what he wanted for his birthday." So we bought that, and we said, "Let's just watch Friends and make the uh, the, the Friends set." So that's what we did, and I, I just I just watched the Friends. And how old are Harry and Danny now? They are so Harry is fifteen mm. um, in the last last year of doing his GCSEs or whatever is going to yeah, happen question mark. Um, and Danny has just started secondary school so he's just turned 12 so there's something we have sort of in common because um, I understand you met your husband and found out you're having a baby quite early on literally within weeks yes same for me <laughs> So uh, to be fair to me, I can't speak for you. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't meet him then. I had met him many. I've known him a long, long time. Okay. But I just started going out with him. Well, that's actually similar again. Okay. Like, no that's okay. Yeah. No judgment. <laughs> here. You can if do, that had live been your the case, life, it'd be fine. But yeah, no, I knew Richard for about a year and a half before we started dating. Um, but yeah, after six weeks, we found out there was a baby on the way, mm-hmm. which was a bit of a surprise. Um, so I think you'd been, maybe beat me a bit, so maybe you're four weeks, is that right? Like a month? Yeah, yeah. we've been going out for about a month or so. And so obviously, like, I hadn't had a period in the time, mm. but I just thought maybe I just haven't had one. <laughs> it's only been four weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, that's yeah. perfectly reasonable. Reasonable. Um, so when you did find out, um, who were the first people you spoke to about it? First person I spoke to was um, Tom. Uh, I'd, I was in um, 
New Street Station, when I took the pregnancy test, very glamorous, <laughs> uh, as in a toilet, a public toilet, which back then, I'm glad to say that thanks to the comedian Joe Lysett who campaigned about it, you don't have to pay 20 pence to go into the New oh, Street Station uh, toilet anymore. Um, but you, yeah, so I paid 20 pence and I had bought uh, like a ridiculously, one of those ridiculously expensive ones. You can get them much cheaper now. They, they really have come down in price. Mm. Um, pregnancy tests in the boots at New Street Station. And uh, it was one of those ones that flashes pregnant at Ooh. you. You're like, you know, <laughs> pregnant. It's an excited um, test. <laughs> and I just was like totally flabbergasted. But... In that second, and every single time I've taken a pregnancy test, I've had the same feeling. I knew exactly what I was going to do within the first second. Mm. And so I just knew that I wanted to have the baby. Um, And I I spoke to Tom about it. I rang him and uh, told him that I'd taken a pregnancy test and that I was pregnant. And uh, And he said... Uh, well, what do you want to do about this? And he didn't say one way or another what he thought. Uh, And I said, I'm just going to take some time. Even though I knew, Mm. I felt like I had to pretend that I didn't know and that we were going to go through a process (laughs) of thinking about it. That was a total lie. (laughs) I was going through literally no process. (laughs) Uh, But I pretended that I was going to. Uh, So, And he was like, that's absolutely fine. And then I told my mum. My mum was the first... I went round to my mum's house um, and I told her and she... I just said, I just don't think I'm ready. Uh, And she just said to me, you will never be ready. And then she made me that day go to Ikea. I feel like this was a ploy on her part. (laughs) to be like look at all this baby stuff and look at these people who are having babies and people buying things for their houses and things um that was literally the same day it was like she was like well i'm going to ikea why don't you come to ikea with me you know i like the meatballs so i was like yeah i'll go to ikea um and the whole time we just sort of walked around there's something easy isn't there about walking with somebody and talking to them purposeful outing where you can let thoughts come and go and she just said to me you're never ever ever going to be ready to have a baby don't kid you she 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 was not she definitely wasn't campaigning for me to definitely have it Mm. she'd never met tom at this point Mm. um so she wasn't definitely not campaigning for me to have it although deep down she definitely was we were both lying to ourselves and each other um (laughs) and yeah she just was like i just don't want you to make the decision based on this idea of a perfect future that you think is going to occur was basically what she was trying to do meanwhile here's ikea showing you the perfect (laughs) vision of your future (laughs) look you could have all these things in your nice house (laughs) exactly it never actually it's never perfect but just have a gaze at what you could that literally never turned out to be the case but um but yeah that that i i I remember vividly just walking around Ikea. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, then we, you know, we told her. Uh, I didn't tell anybody external from us until we decided what we were going to do, but I think we must have decided pretty quickly. I don't remember anything, like, I don't remember me and Tom ever. Did your friends know you were already dating a bit? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, it was very dramatic when we were in our early 20s. Everybody was involved in everything, weren't they? Like, you know, <laughs> everything is a drama. Yeah, uh, so how old were you then? I was 22 mm. when I uh, got pregnant. and Which is pretty young, isn't it? Yeah. It, oh, yeah, but 
my mum was 22 when she had her first baby and was considered to be geriatric. Mm. So, um, yeah, 22 is, was quite young. But in your peers, presumably, that many friends were having no, 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 definitely not. Uh, and sometimes, this is a terrible admission about the boy that I love very, very much and I'm very glad that he's here on this earth. I sometimes think that maybe I decided that I wanted to keep the baby to have something different and interesting to say. <laughs> At the first, like, genuinely, like, you know, the yeah. drama... Yeah, definitely. I think that the reality of that. it is that, you know, when you make those decisions, I think there was some element of, like, check it out, like, I'm grown up. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I, whenever I've been pregnant or had a baby, there's definitely a part of me that feels like I've done something really clever, even though it's not, like, particularly clever. It's just, it's just a sort of sensation of, like, check this out. Like. I, yeah, like... <laughs> That, I mean, when people used to congratulate Tom, I used to be like, well, he had a broken leg, he literally did nothing. <laughs> Just lay there. Don't congratulate him. Focus your attention on me. Yes, please. This is miraculous what <laughs> I am actually managing to do. Also, I'd been told that I would struggle to have babies, so that um, definitely made me, um, like, sort of crystallise my mind as if this was my only chance. But I think that that was just an excuse to try and make an outlandish decision on my part that other people wouldn't have expected me to make. Yeah, and sometimes I think, you know, you're, you're either one of those people that gets quite excited about the twists and turns that life can throw and sort of runs a bit towards it, or you're not really. And I'm like that as well. I quite like the fact yeah. that, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff can happen. Like, so much of life is so reactive. Making plans is never really... Turn- I don't make plans for yeah, anything. I never neither. make a plan ever. Do you do New Year's resolutions or anything like that? Uh, every year I say that I'm going to moisturise my skin this year. <laughs> every year I do it for three days. <laughs> and I would say don't bother. Like, honestly... I've can I just say, you're the, literally the only person who's ever said that to me. Because people cannot believe the idea that I do not moisturise my skin. I stop. I had a revelation a little while back of like... I know so many blokes that never moisturise, and you know yeah, your fine. skin is what what it is, right? I mean, I'll do it if it feels nice, but I don't do that. I'm glad my mum probably went here because she's been cleansed her moisturiser was always the mantra. See, the reason that out. I don't do it is because my mum washed her face with pear soap every day and nothing else. And I am one of many boys, and yeah. <laughs> like nobody like did like nobody ever brushed my hair or anything. It was just like I didn't have pretty plaits or anything or have any sort of feminine <laughs> regime to aspire to. And then when I went to university, I was literally like, why before spending all this time doing all this stuff? <laughs> this is unbelievable. The level and the amount of stuff that people take on holiday I'm like you could fill up with like gin and duty free that with the amount of potions that you are bringing yeah, yeah. on holiday so yeah I don't moisturize my skin but every year I make uh the sort of first attempt but I never had spots as a teenager so maybe that's why I, I never don't think like... you need moisturizer I think you're fine just, <laughs> I'm saying just don't, don't bother. Bother. you know new new different new year's, new year's resolution. resolution I'll just yeah I don't know Mine is always to be a better eBayer because I never leave feedback, even though I'm very active on eBay. So I'm always like, I've got to start leaving feedback for these people sending me things. And I never do that. the most niche uh, <laughs> New Year's resolution I've ever had. I must give better feedback on, not, not just generally, some just, just some. on eBay. eBay, yeah. I don't really buy things on eBay anymore. Oh. I used to, like, when, and when I was face. first uh, pregnant with my son. Um, and off work when he was little, I became like obsessed. That was back when people, the jig was not up and you could still buy stuff in charity shops and then flog it for more on eBay. <laughs> Everybody's at it now. Yeah, so. I know. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So what was happening in your life? Where were you on your sort of political track? Had you stayed clear in your mind from when you were small about, about working in politics? Was that still on your horizon? Um, no, when I was 16 years old, my mum at that point was like quite high up in um, this organisation around the health service. And when I was 16 years old, it was the 50th anniversary of the NHS. Uh, it was 1997. Tony Blair had just been elected and... Uh, I did my work experience uh, at my mum's organisation that was running this massive conference and I did it for the week of the conference. Um, And so I was put in with the press team of this conference for the the whole national celebration of the 50th anniversary of the NHS. And I watched what the press team, two people who now, obviously Alistair Campbell and Angie, who I know well now, I watched what they did Mm. before Tony Blair went somewhere. And they came the day before and they did a walkthrough of the exact people he would talk to and this, that. Uh. And I was literally like, oh, this is not for me. I could not be this controlled about anything. Um, And then that made me want to have a job in politics that wasn't frontline politics. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, this is still very much like the area the public sector the area that I am interested in working in Mm. but I don't think that I can I don't think that I can basically be told what to speak think and I'm not saying Tony Blair was told what to speak think but it was very the job side of it it was just very controlled and I just thought, I'll be shit at this. And my I, my mum was like, you would be really rubbish at this. Don't do this. Um, so then I thought, oh, I'll maybe go to the civil service or work in charity lobbying and that sort of thing. And my mum uh, used to do, uh, she used to get The Guardian on a Monday. It doesn't exist anymore, this. You used to have all the public sector jobs in it mm. on a Monday. 
and uh, she, we would sit and go through the jobs together about the kind of jobs that I might want to have when I grow up and there was all sorts of like and everybody seemed to be being paid so much in the public sector but that was because it was the 1990s not mm. now yeah. <laughs> I think it's not quite so good now <laughs> no but um, so when you were 22 what, what was going on with your work um, I just I'd finished just university. Unit, I was working in the pub uh, when me and Tom got together. I was working in my local pub and doing like sort of temporary jobs in different offices um, and stuff. But then when I took uh, I took maternity leave, I decided at that point that I wanted to a go and work in the civil service or do something like that or uh, become a social worker. Mm. Um, and so to become a social worker you had to have sort of like to get onto the master's course because I already had a degree rather than doing an undergraduate degree you had to go and do like uh you know frontline support work uh, experience so at that point I went and I set up like a stay and play group for uh, asylum seekers because that was easy for me to do with a baby <laughs> it was helpful to me as well um and in Ladywood uh in Birmingham at the time was during the the wars and uh, civil unrest in Sierra Leone and the end of the civil war in Rwanda and Birmingham was full of um, uh, refugees, um, specific, lots and lots of female women refugees from that area. So we did, uh, and there was terrible, my mum at the time was doing a piece of work on how in that bit of uh, Birmingham, one in three babies died of infant mortality. And One in three? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, um, terrible. And so my mum was doing this big piece of sort of equalities work around the health service. Um, and so I'd, I'd gone and with this charity and set up this stay and play to try and get better access to services for women. I worked with young offenders. Um, I was a support worker for people with Alzheimer's because I wanted to see, sort of try every discipline mm. if I was going to be a social worker to see what I would want to do. And I just absolutely loved doing that sort of work. Mm. Um, and so then when I went back to work, when Harry was about 18 months and I started looking for jobs and things, I decided that that was what I wanted to focus on. So I then went and worked at various different charities that worked with various different groups in society until I wound up working at Women's Aid. And standing as a candidate with the Labour Party didn't happen until you'd had both your boys? Both, both of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both of them were... Uh, and even when I became a local councillor, yeah, Danny must have been about three, so that was 2012. And did that feel like a big shift from working at Women's Aid? Um, well, just not really, because I just basically... Um, I mean, it's different. very different working environment when you work in a place that is only staffed by women and is um, everybody has common cause, common endeavour mm. and an outcome and you're, you're, you're all largely pushing in the same direction to then going to work uh, in frontline politics when I became a local councillor was eye-opening. But um, the the... I made it about that thing, though, so I yeah. became the victim's champion for the city and I made my role be about the commissioning of vulnerable people's services, so people with substance misuse, offenders, uh, people who've suffered uh, violence against women and girls. And so just, I just took the skill that I had and adopted it to mm. that new workplace. And I suppose from the outside looking in, I do feel like politics seems so dominated, frontline politics, I say, so, so dominated by men and also this sort of 
boys club type feel is that an accurate thing for when it's on the inside of it? it it is it is a very accurate thing um it's it's got better i think and it's certainly the numbers have got better since i was there <laughs> made that sound like that's all down to me it's really not <laughs> uh, it's down to years and years of the women's movement struggling for that mm. um but no it is definitely still a uh boys club even when theresa may was the prime minister and i was there still felt like a boys club you still have to constantly work to remind people that female life experience is a thing uh, and that is your job often is just to say oh come remember in this policy mm. girls exist and you know what about women who work should we remember that women have jobs as well when we're talking about the economy um so the default is still very much a boys club mm. but the, there is it, quite a lot of structure now in place to try and check the default. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was reading in your book when you were talking about, you know, being a working mother and also just being a woman at work and how, especially as women get over the age of 40, the, the gender pay gap is still very much a thing. Yeah, very much. And also about the inequality of how um, maternity leave and paternity leave is structured at the moment. And whilst... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong with this, whilst men can still take... Uh, they can apportion it in a couple about who yeah. has which... But, but there's no incentive for the man to do that. And I think it was Sweden, you said, it's got, there's a yeah, more of yeah. a financial incentive for, for the well, father. It's, it's, it's less of a financial incentive, more of a disincentive, is that you lose your benefits if you don't do it. So, oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, so it's called use it or lose it in, um, in, in Sweden. I spent my whole life working in equalities, being like, oh, I bet it's better in Sweden. Like, I've started to like be really like, oh, your furniture's better and <laughs> it all things goes back to are Ikea. just better. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh let me guess, Sweden, the land of milk and honey. Um, so I think I sort of become like an unconscious bias against the people of Sweden. It was that one Ikea trip that must have done it. Um, it's not perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Stop with your perfectness. It can't be this good. Um, but, uh, well, some of my friends went to live in Sweden and they said you know you're absolutely you know it's all right this much better things work much better maternity leave all this sort of thing it's all much better but it is much more controlled society mm. than we have and I thought yeah Sweden we're free <laughs> <laughs> free and unequal but free nonetheless <laughs> <laughs> terrible reaction um but um yeah the 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 way that uh, these things are structured is that men it Basically, you're given essentially nine months of some sort of pay mm. and you share it between you. In fact, David, who is here in the office, he did that with his partner. Um, they shared the the leave. But to me, that means it's better than where we were. And mm. if I had could have taken that up, I would have. My husband, A, was in a much more secure employment environment that had far better... He worked for a big company. They, you know, they, they would have had better pay structures, whereas I only ever got um, basic, the most basic material. Mm maternity state statutory state-based maternity pay and actually I wouldn't have made those decisions not necessarily on my emotions but on my finances the ability to pay the rent but at the moment that it sort of says okay but a man has to take it away from a woman mm. so you get this nine months or up to a year and you have to split it which is better than it was but still like why can't they both have it yeah I don't see why they can't both have it that to me seems and even if they wanted to take it together I would never have taken it together because you know if you took it separately you've got 
18 solid months of childcare there. Yeah. And then free childcare starts to kick in. So you're solving two crises there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because you mentioned your husband. I know he does, you've spoken about how he does the majority of the childcare. Mm-hmm. But, and that really shouldn't be a thing. But, but and yeah, I think it still oh. really is actually. Oh, it's totally abnormal. I don't, I do, yeah, I don't know very many. I, I do know a couple of examples, but it's kind of count on one hand type examples. Oh, yes, it's totally abnormal. Did he have to give up work to do that, or was he working alongside No, he, he, luckily, I mean, and this is, again, why it's slightly abnormal. It's, my husband is, was a lift engineer when my children were born. He worked a night shift. Oh, wow. Um, so he was and he worked a shift pattern honestly if you can work out the logistics of how we had to organize our childcare on a shift pattern that is not the same any week after the next and it rolls so it's a four-day rolling shift so it's four days on four days off so start on a monday this week and then the next week it'd be starting on a tuesday and it just constantly rolls and so nurseries when they're like you have to book in i was literally like this is the worst there's so many things that fall outside of all that stuff just like just just like a shift pattern that's not that's not new (laughs) a shift pattern that's that's really quite basic part of the environment that we all work in yeah but so but because he had four days on four days off um, for four days of the week, and that could be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, remember, and sometimes he had to work the weekend. It just worked out so much better for us that he was... That, I mean, he didn't sleep a lot in the first... Because I, I, even if you're a night shift worker, if I'm awake in the day, right, mm-hmm. and you're... I, there's something disconnect about the amount of sleep that I think you need. I think you need to be in bed till about midday, even if you only got into bed at eight o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's just sort of like, okay, you've had your peace. You're asleep upstairs now. Yeah. Get up now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I feel that I definitely had that bad attitude towards his night shift working. So he was able to, um, like, you know, and my mum was alive then and she uh, had retired um, and so she was able to do some of it. Both his parents were still in work. But um, so that really like worked out that it would be, whereas I worked a nine to five job, mm. that he would do the the vast majority of it. It's just much better at it than me. He likes playing boring games. Well, like, also, I think it's good if, you, I don't know, but like, for me, the guilt I associate when I have someone is looking after my kids that's not me if I'm working it's significantly less guilt if it's Richard that's got them than if I've got my nanny with them. Yeah, I feel um, zero guilt when if it was Tom with them. That's I, the only thing I feel guilt for is him, I think. Now, looking back, I feel more guilt that I wasn't more sympathetic because it's really hard looking after It is, kids. definitely. <laughs> it's like the hardest job in the world. It's, and yeah. I think I was a bit like, well, why isn't dinner ready? I was probably like a 1950s... <laughs> 1950s house husband um i was yeah and and still now you can say because our kids are older now and they they really take no looking after and they're seriously no bother at all Uh, they're more emotional strain than they are physical labor it's no coalface anymore but um i still there is an element i can't believe i'm gonna say this where even though I'm working from home most of the time at the moment, and he's my husband has a manual job, so he doesn't work from home. It's impossible for him to work from home, so he goes out to work. And still, I expect him to make the dinner, <laughs> even though I'm there. And like he'll come in and he'll sometimes say, what are we having for dinner? And I'm like, oh, I don't know what I fancy. And he was like, no, I wasn't asking you what you want me to make you. <laughs> I was suggesting 
<laughs> you know, you've been here all day. Yeah. You could have popped a chicken in the oven. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, like I've forgotten mm. that I could put the dinner on because <laughs> I never had to do any of that stuff. I'm a terrible wife. <laughs> no, you're not, but it does make me think that if you're someone like me that finds yourself very much, um, you know, as I said, I'm already, I'm hoping to raise five feminist kids. I very much believe in equality. I'm passionate about women feeling they have all the opportunities and getting that playing field as level as it can be. And yet, my husband as well, he's, he's got all the same ideals mm-hmm. as me, but our roles are still quite traditional. And sometimes I wonder how much of it is, is something that's individual, as in something I should call out and try and um, address myself and how much of it is just sort of the fabric of how everything is set up it's both I yeah, should imagine both, but most it? of it is fabric I would have thought yeah. most of it is fabric because it's much it's like socialism <laughs> the people who espouse socialism the most are usually the ones who practice it the least <laughs> in, yeah. in my uh, experience um, and it's very, very hard, even when you have, like, the certainty of your ideals to get everything right and do everything right and not feel like you're sort of... Whether it's environmentalism, whether it's feminism, you know, we're all guilty mm. of getting it wrong. Yeah. And not even getting it wrong, just just putting up with the simpler thing. Mm. And that's okay too. Like, I want women to be able to feel like when they make a choice that it doesn't have to be really, like, thinking consciously about which is the best choice, that just, like, the path of least resistance is okay too. It's okay to be, like, just good enough. I just want people to feel like they're good enough. You don't have to be bloody perfect at anything. You don't have to be a perfect feminist. You don't have to be... That's why the the whole sort of idea of the guilty feminist is a great concept, and it is so true. I remember... um, watching a thing about me giving voice to all these women from Northern Ireland who had to travel for an abortion. I stood in the House of Commons and I read out the words because their own representatives are entirely anti-abortion mm. who sit in the House of Commons and thought, well, I'll read it out then if these people won't represent the people they are who are voting in their area, I'll do it. And when I watched back the video, it's really, really moving the whole time. I could All I could think was, I wish I'd put some dry shampoo on my fringe. <laughs> So, you know, we're n- none of us is is doing it perfectly and none mm. of us is the perfect feminist. No, and uh, actually sometimes when you admit that thing of going good enough is is good enough. Yeah. Um, I think my most unhappy times um, as a mum are the times when I've put myself under pressure for some sort of other other woman out there somewhere who's getting it done. She's got exactly the same challenges as me, but she's nailing it. And then I'm like, that person doesn't exist and... And, you know, the idea that other families are achieving, like lockdown, classic, I was like, oh, my God, the homeschooling. I just, like, in my head, all, all the other families were just nailing it. Their kids were They're being obedient. <laughs> people just lie, especially people with babies. Biggest liars in the world, worse than politicians. I don't know why we get a bad name. Like, especially old people who had a baby a long time ago. <laughs> 
they're the worst. Why are you lying? My mum was literally like, you were eating a roast dinner at three weeks. I was like, we just absolutely weren't eating a roast dinner at three weeks. And if we were, you were frankly negligent. And it's no wonder some of us have turned out wrong. And, that is your like, mind of something in your book as well, where you're saying about like when we're little girls were sort of sold this idea of romance is the thing that's going to save us. And like the idea of the guy, the, you know, Cadbury's milk tray man coming in with chocolates. And you're like, I don't want the, the, the guy scaling the walls of my house to lay chocolates for me while I'm sleeping. I want, just want someone to take the bins out. Yeah, <laughs> just really. Yeah. I like my aspirations are, are far, far greater in my opinion. Mm. That I just want someone to like remember which biscuits I like in the supermarket. Exactly. Like that is far more I'm important. I'm the same at home though. Like to me, if Richard makes himself a cup of tea and doesn't make another one for me, I'm, that is like, do you Can still I just love say, <laughs> if that were to happen in my house, not from my perspective, but from my husband's perspective... Mm. That would that's that's literally like selling your firstborn child. Not to yeah, my, yeah. I mean, my husband would just he would kill me. <laughs> I, I, I think I've shed tears over it before. Like I know to you, it's just a cup of tea, but to me, it's it's a sign that you see me, that you know I've been up for a long time with the little one, and you're just thinking, you know, she probably would like a cup of tea. My, I mean, honestly, to, I mean, the the, the I'm great glad this is tapping <laughs> more than just me. The greatest, um, <laughs> the greatest guide I have ever had in this regard about the way that we compare um, people to each other and. What exactly what you just said is my is my husband in the comparing and contrasting with how other people do he once just said to me I think it was when the, Harry was really a tiny baby when it's like the height of why isn't my baby sleeping through the night when everybody else's baby sleeps eight hours from the age of two weeks um he just said to me I don't understand I can't understand and can you explain to me why you compare yourself with them what's who benefits like what no, not even like who benefits like why are you bothering just sort of like he genuinely needed like a me to e- clear question of just... explain mm. why does it matter what somebody else is doing what what's the benefit to you to be thinking about it like he couldn't understand why I was doing it mm. and I just was like he's he's never ever lost a night's sleep worrying about anything because he genuinely thinks Worry won't change it. Mm. And he can act like he, he doesn't like just that. think it. Like, I know that's the case. My mum yeah. always said, Worry ruins today and change, doesn't change tomorrow. Like, I know those things, but he genuinely is like, Why are you worrying? Yeah. And, and can't, and living with somebody like that, yeah, who is so straightforward, yeah. And so, like, if he's pissed, if people think I'm up for a Jesus Christ, like, people would invite us out for dinner, and I'd be like, well, we can't get a babysitter, and he'd just be like, we don't want to come. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, this is terrible. <laughs> like, uh, uh, anyway. You know uh, what, though? I've kind of had dreams where I'm like, I would quite love to live like that. Just, I think I thought that's what being in my 40s would be like, actually. Just like, I'm just not going to worry anymore. I'm not going to think in those yeah. complicated ways, and I'm going to just be much more... Straight up, that's the, yeah. that was sort of my goal for. Well, for my now. husband definitely. If anything, we've infected <laughs> each other. He's made me more like that, and I've made I've definitely sort of modelled social behaviours that he has picked up in the yeah, fifteen yeah. years that we have been together. But like he will, I remember when I was pregnant with Harry and we were babysitting a friend's child, which turned out to be a terrible disaster. She was sort of like trying to do me a solid, like, would you like to look after my baby and see what it's like? The baby (laughs) cried the entire time and I thought, right, well, I've made a terrible decision. But me and my mate Alex were doing it together and 
Tom obviously didn't know Alex very well because we hadn't been together uh, for a long time before I got pregnant. And he came to pick me up to take me home from babysitting this child. And Alex was there. And I said to Alex, get in the car. And I'll say, oh, Tom, can you give Alex a lift home? And Tom was just like, well, that's actually really inconvenient. No, get out. (laughs) (laughs) He He would never do that now. Yeah. But then I remember just thinking, oh, this is so embarrassing. Wow. But I he's, like it, though. Yeah, Because also, is. when it turns out, when people do talk in a way that's quite unapologetic, nobody actually takes it badly because they can see that it's just yeah. a real thing. They're not trying to, you know, he's not trying to be rude. Yeah, like, I, sorry, like when people go things like, you know, I hate the name Kevin, and somebody will be like, well, that's my name. My <laughs> husband would be like, I still don't like it. <laughs> like... Sucks to be you. <laughs> like, essentially, would be his reaction. He's like, oh, well, I've just immediately changed my Can he get? Does he get the humour in it, though? Does it make him oh, laugh he, as he well? Does. But also, he now, he definitely... The funniest thing he does is he will tell hilarious jokes and make out like he's being... Yeah, like yeah, he yeah, is, yeah. and he's not. He's he can he can play a totally sort of straight man all the time. You know what? As well, I, get the imp- I get the impression he's going to make a very good old man husband. <laughs> oh you know my I mean? god! He's yeah. going to nail it. Oh, he's totally going to nail it. He's totally. <laughs> he nailed being a dad. He nailed. He's now being a husband. He's totally going to nail it, and he looks just like his own dad, who is a total silver fox. <laughs> uh, and so he's just going to turn into like a debonair old man who's just going to nail being grumpy about things. It's brilliant. That's perfect. I really, really love my husband. I have to say, I feel like it's like, I, I feel slightly bad when people slug off their husbands because I don't really have anything to say. Yeah, I do actually. Um, happily, I can, I can <laughs> agree with that. And weirdly, when people are very confessional about their own bad relationships, I feel compelled to re- reveal something, to bring something, you know, that slightly social awkwardness. But usually the things that have upset me go as far as, well, it actually sounds like it is quite upsetting, but maybe the tea tea situation yeah. and not making me one or that kind of things like that I mean I, my husband would genuinely kick him out of the house <laughs> if, he, if, he, if he did that that would he doesn't be. do it so often anymore he's learned from my, my, the my worst thing emotional is when, response when my girlfriends sit around and slag off their husbands usually about childcare or things like that mm. um I always just think I end up just going oh yeah I do that like I'm the badder in the situation <laughs> Just hear versions of yourself. Like, yeah, oh. terrible. <laughs> well, maybe your husband just wanted. It hadn't occurred to him to put the chicken in the oven <laughs> yeah, while he was sat at home. Whatever. <laughs> um, so, with with having the, the babies and and with your you know becoming a counsellor and mm-hmm. um, did that was that influenced by being a mum or was that just kind of the trajectory you felt like you were already on? It definitely the, the it was definitely influenced by being a mum because. When I fell pregnant with Harry, I felt like I mattered for the first time in my life. And actually not my life. My parents made me feel like I mattered. And I was always confident and clever at school and did well and things. But there was definitely a period in my late teen years and my early 20s that, um, like, where I sort of lived out all of those sort of terrible... Uh, gender stereotypes of having to care for a bad boyfriend who treated me poorly, knocking my confidence, not really having any drive. Then when I was told that I would struggle to have children, basically thinking, well, my body doesn't matter and all those sorts of terrible, like putting terrible boundaries on myself. Uh, And then when I was pregnant with Harry and when I had Harry, I just thought, you know what? Like you say, I'm 
check out how special I am. Like, this is really special. And I matter in the world now. Um, mm. And I understand why young girls end up having babies. Well, they don't so much anymore, but they used to when I was a kid. Because it makes them matter in the world. Like, you matter to somebody. And being a mum gave me a massive confidence boost. And I know it can go one of two ways, but I mm. was just like, you know, I'm a twenty, I'm a twenty-three, I'm a twenty-five-year-old with two kids. Like, do you know, I can do anything. Yeah, was the like the reality for me. And so they drove me to be much more ambitious. I was very ambitious as a child. They're not very ambitious and very wayward. And then they made me really, really, really ambitious for the future. And for, so everything I, I do actually is thanks to Harry. Aww. He likes to remind me of that. <laughs> Danny likes to remind him that he's a bastard child and Danny isn't. There's a whole shtick that they do. <laughs> um, I, I read that you said that though for, for working women in politics, it's actually harder to be, you know, you'd think it'd be hard to be a mother in politics, but actually it's the women that either through choice or through event, oh, yeah. have, to, have not become mothers that actually have a really tough time. I, I, I think that that's definitely true. And more and more you see it as people start to talk about their experiences much more. Politics has definitely become much more feminised in my time there by the sort of personal story. Mm. And that is because women stood up and bore their souls about things mm. um, much more so than it ever happened before. But yeah, so the way that as, as an abortion uh, campaigner... Um, the way that I would be treated compared to Stella, uh, who, you know, we were often in lockstep, we did lots of stuff together, and Stella Creasy, the MP, who now has a, a, a daughter, Hetty, who is adorable, she's like the tea room mascot, mm. um, the way she was treated compared to the way that I was treated, um, that she was, she wanted abortions to be free, safe and legal because she, you know, she, all she cared about was work and as a woman. And I never got that stuff said to me. And I was public about having had an abortion and still it was never aimed at me in the same way as the vitriol that she faced. It's this idea of a woman who didn't have a child. And actually what turned out was that she'd really struggled for a long, long, long time to get pregnant and then stay pregnant and had mm. traumatic miscarriages. So all of that and, held at her must have been And then people throwing stuff at her about dead babies oh when goodness. she's going through... Now, I knew she was going through that yeah. because she's my friend, but the public didn't know that. She has no. since spoken about it publicly. The public didn't know about it. And just seeing that level of vitriol aimed at her because she was a woman without a child, as if the women who choose not to have a ch child are in some way deficient and... They're, well, they're just wrong. Mm. You're wrong if you choose not to have a baby. Theresa May very much was treated as if she didn't care about the future because she didn't have children. And it's mm. just like, do you know what? If anything, if anything has ever made me want to blow up the entire future, it is dealing with my children. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me more likely to press the nuclear button than less likely. <laughs> just literally like... I remember my mum, my mum would... Was later in my life... She became the chair of the Birmingham Mental Health Trust um, 
in sort of semi-retirement she became the the chair of this and she uh, you know so she had jurisdiction over people who were sectioned she used to say to me i swear to god i'm gonna section you like a threat <laughs> <laughs> like you know our children bring out the very very worst of us we would never talk to other people the way we'd speak to our children no and no i mean i'm I, it's like I, i'm like i don't believe in democracy when it's in my house i'm like this is a totalitarian state <laughs> You don't have an opinion. <laughs> and even if you do, it doesn't matter. You have no say in this household. No. And so the the idea that people like Theresa May, who chose not to have... And that she didn't mm. choose, she, she couldn't have children, mm. is what she has, I believe, said. But that somehow, that she's somehow deficient, not just as a woman, but just as a, a politician, because she's chosen not to have children. Yeah. Even if she chose... You know, I've got, one of my very best friends chose not to have children. And... She, it literally was like, I just don't want that lifestyle. Yeah. Like, I don't want that sofa. Yeah. No, it's no, just I've like, got, fair I've enough. I've got a few friends like that too. And I suppose the, the sort of uncomfortable subtext of that is that part of what it is to, to be female is about the nurturing, the maternal. Whereas actually it's possible to have all of that and not be a mother. And it's also possible to be a mother. And, and not, have none of it? Yeah, exactly. So, but it's a sort of a weird box we sort of put people in sometimes of what they're supposed to represent and and actually i think you spoke about in your book as well like the sort of the pedestal of motherhood as well and oh, all, yeah. all the oh the kind of emerging like oh my goodness saintly person can have a child and all the things about your life that are then supposed to be shut away in a box and parts of you as well that know, like yeah. turn that down moderate that raise this one up you know the sort of wholesome nature of parenthoods it's like I, do, I mean, I can only blame the Virgin Mary for that. that <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, I, I don't think she did it to herself. <laughs> I feel like she was really put on that pedestal and the idea that she bore uh, yeah. a baby and that this was the sort of first miracle. Mm. Uh, I mean, I know nothing about theology. That could be completely wrong. Um, but, the, you know, this, this, this sort of sanctity yeah. of motherhood as opposed to the sanctity of fatherhood. Yeah. If only we thought that fatherhood was more sacred you know, potentially we wouldn't end up in a social situation where for some it's very casual. Yes, exactly. I think you're right. It would it would um, put the emphasis there. And also for, you know, men that do feel that those emotions or that role comes more challenging for them, they can actually go and get support more readily rather than it being something where it's like, oh, okay, that turns out I'm just not very good at that and sort yeah. of put in a box some things, which is, you know, is really damaging for for everybody affected by that. Um, I wanted to go back to something you touched on because you mentioned about having an abortion. And I know I've got loads of girlfriends that have been through the same thing, but most of them have still done it where they've sort of sworn me to secrecy. In fact, some of my peers don't even know that they were going through the same experience at the same time. And I've always thought it'd be so much better if people felt they were more able to talk about it. But do you, do you feel like it's becoming less of a taboo? Um, I, I probably have an incredibly skewed uh, view of this because almost all of my uh, girlfriends, like you say, have um, had abortions, and they don't feel um, they don't feel like they wouldn't talk about it in front of us. But maybe that is um, maybe they don't. Yeah, they don't go around talking about it very much. But I suppose it's still seen as something though that's got this sort of. Yeah, like you have to come come out as having had it. It's yeah, just like, exactly. not really, it's just yeah. a women's health element. Also, I think that we have to be really, really careful, and I am as guilty of this as anybody. Um, we have to be really careful that when we try and win the argument on abortion, um, that we go for the very difficult stories. Because, you know, you know hard cases make uh, people sit up, but they also make bad law. 
Um, and so it's very easy to go for fatal fetal abnormality. It's very easy to go for children who've been raped, especially when you're talking about an Irish context, what we were fighting there in the Republic and in the North was, had got so emotive that you had to go, I suppose, for the emotive argument. And I have definitely fallen for that. But I just want people to know that the vast majority of people who have an abortion are in no way affected by it. Mm. And that there has to be a voice for the, you know, the the just made the decision, went and had a procedure like any procedure and doesn't think about it uh, as if it was something terrible that happened yeah. because the vast majority of people I know who have had abortions that is their experience mm. and and actually the talk about people being raped or people who were whose lives were threatened by it doesn't represent those uh, yeah. those women and I remember when I went uh, to the clinic in Birmingham uh, I don't know what that weird noise is. <laughs> it's a shutter. shutter. Yeah, like, it's shutter it's next door. Some sort of like uh, sensor or something. When I went yeah. to the clinic in Birmingham and I sat in the waiting room, I remember feeling like, oh gosh, you know, it was this terrible raised by a feminist. Um, I remember thinking, oh God, you know, I'm not going to be like the people who are in there. And I was just like all of the people in there. Yeah. They were just like me. I knew, I knew one woman. I was like, yeah. oh hi. Yeah. Um, and that, and it's the same for women's refuges. I think that people think it's like bad girls. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like prisoner's cell, like H. And it's just like living in a house. And yeah. Like living in a block of flats with a lot of other people in a similar situation to you. Where yeah. you'll have a key worker who lives there as well. It's just like, it's we need to demystify those things that have become about the drama rather yeah. than the reality. No, that's actually a really good way of putting it about demystifying it. I mean, I remember reading in... Catelyn Moran's book um, she speaks about having an abortion after she'd had her two girls she says oh you know she found out she was pregnant went for a scan she's like oh this is, maybe this is going to be my little boy there he is with his jazz hands and then she's like actually no this isn't right for my husband and I this isn't what we're, sort of, what we're planning right now and she said something like you know if if I'm being given the, the power to create life I should also have the power to say that's not happening mm-hmm. now and I actually thought that really was such a good way of putting it it's sort of very matter of fact um but also empowering many more people to talk about how they've had abortions as part of after they've had children because the idea in most people's heads is young knocked up girls yeah uh who are uh, and in those circumstances people can understand it people go oh well you know she had a whole life ahead of her you know she'll get around to it in the future sort of thing um and or people in terrible sort of distress and situations and you, or you know, people who are casual about it in a kind of birth control kind of way, which <laughs> yeah. I think is well, just... Well, I intervened on um, a DUP politician who said that, that people were using it as birth control. And I said, do you think that I have only had sex three times? <laughs> so, because I'm here to tell you, I have done it more times than that. <laughs> so... Please don't think that, you know, I was like, oh, let's not bother with any birth control tonight. I'll just have an abortion. <laughs> I mean, how ridiculous. The fact that people still think that and say it in the House of Commons is quite phenomenal. Um, but that, you know, when I had uh, an abortion, it was in between my two children. And so I, I was in a loving relationship, a loving and stable relationship. Mm. And I had a baby. I knew I could, I was, you know, able to do that Mm. it just wasn't right yeah it just wasn't the right time and people say what do you think that do you ever think that that would have been your little girl and I just think 
well, it was just A, it was just a collection of cells, and B, it isn't, it just isn't. Yeah. I don't need to think, it's like when Tom was having the snip and um, I had been asked if I could be, at the age of 27, if I could be sterilised. And this student was in the room with the student doctor and she gasped. She was like, <gasps> and, the, and she said, but you're only 27. And the doctor said, I think Miss Phillips knows how old she is. You don't <laughs> need to inform her how old she is. Um, and the uh, but people have when then so they basically said you're too young no and it's a much more advanced procedure for you mm. get your husband to do it so my husband at the age of 30 and he didn't have to have any counselling or anything he was able to make that decision completely without any uh, mm. so, uh, uh, unlike me um, when he That's had interesting, yeah when it? he had the snip people said well what if you change your mind I said I want you to realise is that I want him to have the snip because I will change my mind. And when I change my mind and say, let's have another baby, I would like someone to shut a door in my face <laughs> and say, no, you can't. And every time that has happened, when I thought, oh, it would be quite nice, I go, oh, well, it can't happen. And I go, oh, that's, uh, I'm thinking about something else now, whether I'm going to make a chicken for tea. <laughs> like, it goes away in a fleeting second. I wanted that door to be shut. Mm. So, you know, this whole, it would have been that baby, it would have been this, they just, none of it is real. Yeah. None of it is until it's it is. It's also incredibly personal, that kind of stuff, you know. Like if, if you already knew, like, no more babies, then you know no more babies. No more babies. I mean, Tom was very certain. I mean, I think it was literally days after Danny was born. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting down that bloody clinic. <laughs> when I had my um, fifth, uh, I had a sort of stand-in consultant for one of the sessions at the hospital, and she said to me, um, would you like to be sterilised at the same time you give birth? And I, I did think that was quite a stark question. I kind of was like, oh, um, I, I'll, I'll ponder it, thanks. But I was just like, wow, that's quite a big question for well, someone. Well, can I like, just say, I, I have heard some terrible stories in my constituency about women, because there is um, sections of my community, uh, certainly, um, you know, the, the Asian community uh, and the Irish community around here, where, you know, the culture of having lots of children is much more common i mean you're some sort of weird outlier why have you got five children are you absolutely mad yes i'm constantly saying to women who come into my surgery when they're like i'm pregnant again i'm just literally like what is wrong with you how can you cope i just wouldn't i mean two is too many in my opinion Mm. um but the um but the the horrible horrible stories about them without them being told or having interpreted for them being sterilised. Wow. Terrible, like, you know... These things knock the wind out of you, don't they? Yeah, that, I mean, it not, this is not sort of a recent thing, but this is certainly a legacy thing that I've heard about from people who live in my constituency. Um, and that, you know, that, like, there is nothing that I've uh, read or watched on Handmaid's Tale where I can't think of an example of where I've seen that in real life. Mm. And so when you're sort of, you know taking on board all the, the stories that are happening around you. Is it, is it constantly a source for you of, a, of a, like an impetus to keep going, to like make change, to fight for their corner, all this sort of thing? Yeah, or does yeah. it ever feel just so overwhelming, you think? Sometimes it can be overwhelming. More so when I worked in women's aid, I remember there were a few occasions where usually things about children the same age as my children being mm. abused um, that I found... So, like, that, like, I was sick once at work. I just vomited and um, mm. that I just thought, actually, this might be too much. Um, but usually, 
the 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 mo- people say when you see so many bad things how do you keep hope alive and actually the reality is is that when you see people who are in a terrible situation they drip in hope because they're bothered to come and see you like mm. and i've met people i've met young women who have been in and out of the care system been raped by relatives been um like you know just pimped out by drug dealers who get up every day i just can't even like the people who come in here for help are in a desperate situation but they give me hope about the resilience of the human spirit like they're they're bothering to get on a bus and come in here that's it like they're the amazing survivors people are capable of so much and when you see that people are capable of so much you think well then if we have all this power inside of us yeah there's got to be a way of using it for good and that's what keeps you going and And so it's hard in the pandemic because you don't you know i'm not saying you know i really want to see people's sub stories but you're just not i'm not you're not getting the same level of interaction and what about when the um the intensity of it is much more close to home and there are threats made about you or mm. aggressive things said or threats. How does how does how do you sort of deal with that happening? I mean, you 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 learn like like women learn to take, you know, sexual harassment when they're wearing a school uniform, like it's just part of life. That's like you know, I I wish it wasn't. I'm not mm. saying that as like a good thing, but it sort of becomes like, well, she's just part of the deal. Um, and I'll just cope with it. And then um, sometimes you fight back and you fight back aggressively um, and with wit and humour to try and make sure that people realise you're not hurt. Sometimes you can uh, talk about the hurt because I think it's important Mm. to uh, deal with it. But the thing that keeps me going in the hate and everything is that nobody I ever knew who ever changed anything did it without backlash. Mm. (laughs) Nothing, like, good ever came because somebody went, this is a good idea, and everybody went around the table, oh, that sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Like, like, that literally has never happened once ever in the history of anything, any progress ever has it been something that was agreed by consensus early on in its life. Um, That's very true. So, uh, and I, I, I'm much more scared of a world where those people get to silence people. I'm much like me shutting up and going away and not being a politician anymore in order to get the threats to go away doesn't make the threats go away. Yeah. So, you know, there's no solution. It shouldn't really be just part and parcel of the public. Oh, life, I'm think. not suggesting that it should at, yeah. at, at all. It just is at mm. the moment. And we've got to legislate and do all sorts of things to make sure that it isn't. Um, but the and sometimes it it's horrible and sometimes it will affect you what the thing that it bothers me the most is that i just feel so tired by it it's so mm, tiring really tiring um and it's tiring feeling emotions about it and it i feel tired on behalf of like all the women politicians and all the women's movement and people like my mum who went before like sorry man it delivered you like a women hating fascist online mm. <laughs> like it's like dudes man you, you thought it was going to be better and it actually got a bit worse um so i have to try and find a way to put a hopeful spin on it and that yeah. you know you got you got to face what did dolly parton say you could get the rain without the rain yeah good old dolly <laughs> well uh, in a more hopeful time we are sat in your office where we're behind you is a wall of thank you cards and i'm just hoping this is my favorite one <laughs> this is my favorite one it says 
I fucking love you. <laughs> in like calligraphy. With like flowers. It's like flowers. It's like really like chintzy Laura Please. Ashley. But the, the inscription is I fucking love you. Please tell me that's from the woman who's slabs in her garden were taken, <laughs> taken away by your husband. Oh, God. That would be excellent. I'm not sure she ever said thank you, Carl. Oh, what? Come on. You took away paving slabs. Oh, thank you so much for talking to me. No worries, my pleasure. Hey, I'm, um, I'm outside in the garden now. You might hear birds tweeting. You might see a Mickey. What's mummy doing? Am I sitting on a sledge? Ah. We used the sledge when it was snowy and we haven't put it back in the attic. It's just sat in the garden. That's not very organised of us, Mickey. Mm. <laughs> anyway, I hope you liked my chat with Jess. Um, I thought she was brilliant, actually, and I love it when I have a chat with someone and we have lots of giggles as well. And I know I should play it cool, but I've got to be honest, I'm very happy when I manage to tie up the end of a conversation with a joke <laughs> it's just I know I should be like don't even mention it just let people think you're really good at that naturally but actually I get a very like sort of internal high five moment um, oh just found a spoon in the garden it shouldn't be there um, so who should I speak to next week okie dokie next week will be Carrie Ad Lloyd um, who's had two kids her first one uh, was about four five years ago and then she's also had another baby last year during lockdown so we spoke about that and she runs a brilliant podcast called Griefcast. Griefcast is speaking to people about loss and I suppose I mean I, I've been aware of the podcast for a long time I've listened to it a lot over the years but I actually I think it took on special significance to me after I lost my stepdad last year so we speak about that and Carrie Ed's also a, a comedy actress and writer so we speak about that too but mainly thanks so much to jess phillips for this week's chat um she yeah she was exactly as i had hoped she would be and we had a really really good time together and i'm grateful to every everyone that said yes to me for the podcast i've got some lovely guests lined up for this series and thank you mainly to you of course for being here again and uh i should probably put the sledge back in the attic um i guess you guys can't help me with that Yes, Mickey? I, I'm, I'm you want to take your shoes off? Yeah. Okay, we're going to go barefoot in the garden. That's cool with me, man. All right, guys, see you in a... <laughs> oh, see, it's cold, isn't it? See you in a week. <laughs> see you in a week, and thanks very much. And lots of love. Look after yourselves. See you soon.